gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the Stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldron. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I'm Jeff Maldron, and it is a pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee stud takes us down that road of wrestling history. And now, the man of the hour, the Tennessee stud himself, Ron Fuller. Ron, how you doing today? I'm doing great, Jeff. Really glad to be here, my man. And, uh, you know, I think we got another good one today. Um, we're going to jump all over the place today a little bit. We're going to have a pretty good, decent discussion about Jack Briscoe and Eddie Graham. And, uh, you know, we're going to do quite a few different things today. And old lightning saddled up, man. And uh, I'm ready to I'm ready to take somebody on a ride. Okay, well, I see plenty of big names as part of the discussion today. So where are we going to start today? Well, we're going to start today with a trip right away to St. Louis, early in January of 1976. And I'm going to be in the match with Harley Race. Uh, we're going to be talking about becoming a star. Uh, I was kind of becoming a star there in 73. And we'll discuss a little bit about uh, why that didn't happen. Uh, we'll talk about, uh, speaking of St. Louis, we're going to talk some about, like I said, Jack Briscoe and Eddie Graham. A little bit of that conversation mixed in with Sam Muchnick, president of the NWA. We're going to find out who won that first ever Southeastern Wrestling Championship match and that belt on Saturday afternoon, January 25th, 1976, when Ron Wright faced off with Tor Tanaka, managed by Homer Odell. We're going to discuss that entire card. Also featuring Robert and I against Norville Austin and Butch Malone for the Tennessee Tag Championship. We're going to talk about the TV on the Saturday before, before the actual matches. And uh, the day before, like I said, the big card that's going to be on Sunday afternoon. Uh, we'll discuss the, the results of the card. And then we're going to get to our learning tree today, which is, to me is going to be a very interesting one. In fact, the question for today is... Uh, Compare the Welch family wrestling history to the McMahon family of WWE fame and what each family contributed to the sport of wrestling. So, uh, well, I, I can't hardly wait to get to that, to be kind of honest with you, you know. So uh, I, I'm just going to jump right in, Jeff, if that's okay. Go for it. All right. So let's start today with, with what it's like to wrestle in the home of the president of the National Wrestling Alliance, Sam Munchdick, who owned, obviously, St. Louis. First of all, very few guys got the opportunity to wrestle in St. Louis. It wasn't like any other city in America, except possibly Houston, Texas, where every card in St. Louis and sometimes in Houston, too, would be filled from top to bottom with stars. And if you were asked to work St. Louis, uh, you were probably going to go places in the sport. Uh, you had to be invited by Sam himself. You know, the bookers didn't have much control over what went on, and Sam was the man there. So most guys only work there once or twice. You got to go there. You might get to go there two or three times. That'd be it. If you're invited back more often than that, you were what wrestlers called uh, being looked at. <laughs> they, you know, everybody wanted to be able to work in uh, St. Louis a lot because uh, you might have, you know, I might have an eye on you for the big belt. So uh, lots of shots there meant you might be one of those guys. If you got to go there a lot, you, you might be thinking that, well, you know, maybe they are looking at me. So it was where most NWA champions were groomed, to be quite honest with you. You had to sell out the building every time you were on the main event or you began to start to lose any shot of becoming the NWA world champion. It was important to sell out St. Louis, especially if you're on top. 
Let's talk a little bit about one of the NWA world champions and a great friend of mine, Jack Briscoe. Uh, Jack and I were very close. I started working in Florida in 1970, and I was there to about 1974. Jack was there when I went there, and Jack was there when I left, by golly. I mean, he, he was, he was kind of like married to Eddie, and, uh, you know, they, uh, they had great success together. So he spent a lot of time with me, and I considered him kind of a mentor to me, an icon in the sport is what he was, and he was a friend of mine, a close friend of mine. We spent time in the snake pit together, you know, and that's, and that's, that's a pretty nasty place to be. And uh, in the snake pit, Jack Briscoe was king, by golly. And he wasn't a great hooker. He couldn't make you tap out. He didn't have those type of skills. He'd never been taught that. But he was such a phenomenal wrestler that he didn't need it. His skills were so good that he beat you without uh, having to have you scream and without hurting you. He was probably in the best shape of anyone I ever shot with. Uh, he never blew up. He was the first guy from the state of Florida and Eddie's territory to start going to St. Louis regularly. And, and it kind of like is what we're talking about. They were starting to groom him in the early 70s. After he became champion, I was the next to get those regular shots into St. Louis. For some reason, they picked me. And, uh, you know, and I, and I think Sam had a lot to do with that. But Jack spent a lot of time with me. He told me what to expect in St. Louis and what to look for and who to become friends with and all the things that close wrestling buddies talk to each other about. He tried to prepare me for St. Louis and there's no way to prepare for St. Louis. I mean, you're just wrestling against some of the best in the world and, and you're always under that pressure to have a great match. Uh, I didn't expect to be going back. Uh, but in 1973 alone, I ended up working Keel Auditorium 10 times in 1973. I had 20 television matches in 1973 in St. Louis. I worked with a lot of tremendous names. Uh, Black Jack Lanza, Ivan Koloff, Bobo Brazil, Bill and Danny Miller, Hans Smith, Pat O'Connor. I had a tag match. My partner was Johnny Valentine, and Johnny Valentine and I wrestled two world champions in the same tag, Gene Kaninsky and Terry Funk. So, I mean, you're liable to go there and wrestle. You don't know who you're going to wrestle, but they're all big names. I hadn't been there since April 19th of 1974, and we're into 1976 here. It had been a long time, me being out of St. Louis. And I think I was started considering, uh, when I started thinking about owning my own territory, I think it took me out of maybe possible discussions for, for being the big guy and, and wearing the big belt. They don't want a world champion that has a territory, I don't believe, especially if he owns it, because you, your focus has got to be on your on the NWA belt. It's, it's an every night thing. Uh, you got to be at your best all the time, and you don't want to be thinking about what's going on back home. So, you know, in 1975, Sam called me again after a while of not being there, and he asked me to work two shows for him early in 76. So because we're running on Sunday afternoons in the winter that time of year and not on Fridays, which is his night in St. Louis, he flew me into work there on January 16th, 1976. I knew pretty quick when I got a look at the card where I stood in St. Louis at that point. I was in a handicap match, and uh, it wasn't me against two guys. It was uh, me and Jerry Oates against Harley Race. So it didn't take long for me to realize I'd have probably been better off to just stay home in Knoxville. I was already scheduled to come back in February, a month later, and that's going to be my last shot when I go there until January of 1977. Just a little bit more about Jack Briscoe before we move on. He, he was Eddie's man, and Eddie was the man. <laughs> you know, the, Eddie had tremendous power there with the NWA in the 70s. Jack started making the St. Louis every other Friday back in as early as 1972. Uh, he didn't win the championship to a couple of years after that. You know, he had to pay his dues in St. Louis. It, it was simple. Every NWA champion had to pay their dues and prove their drawing ability in St. Louis before they were ever going to secure that 10 pounds of gold. I can tell you that. There was another element to it as well. Even if you were a star there, in order to be selected for the strap, you had to be recommended by one of the powers in the National Wrestling Alliance. I mean, territory owners, and those owners only had power usually for a short time. So, you know, it depended on what territory you were working in as to how, why and how you got the belt. 
uh, Rick Flair, North Carolina, been there for many, many years. Jack Briscoe, Florida. Eddie Graham had that power. He's one of those guys in the early 70s. And not only did he have that power, he had a great candidate to recommend for the title, Jack Briscoe. Gosh, he's one of the greatest wrestlers of all time in the amateurs. He only lost one match in his four years at Oklahoma. He won three national championships. He was a proven talent at the box office in Florida as well. And he was going to prove he was a talent in St. Louis, too. Jack had a very likable personality. All wrestlers like Jack. I don't know very many people didn't like Jack. He was obviously a great talker on the microphone. And he was respected by all forms of the media because he had that legitimate collegiate background. Eddie and Jack, together, they made a very tough combination to ignore when it came time to choose a new champion. I mean, you you, you got Eddie, uh, who has that power and that respect, and at the same time, you've got one of the greatest wrestlers of all time uh, that he's sponsoring here, basically. So Eddie was like a father to me. My father and him were best friends and had been for 30 years and did everything together once Dad got involved in the Florida Territory. Eddie began his rise among territory owners, like I said, in the early 70s. He had a company that was filled with talent maybe the best anywhere from 1972 to 75, any territory, anywhere in the world. He was surrounded by influential owners of other territories that could sway the vote for champion with him. My dad was one of those influential friends and part owner of the territory with Eddie. Eddie commanded great respect and fear from others for many reasons. He was respected for how he handled business. What he did for the Tampa community and the Florida's Boys Ranch, where he was the number one contributor, even how he was perceived by the major politicians across the state, he was known by everybody, and everybody took him seriously. And he was feared, too. <laughs> you know, and He was feared for having lots of shooters in his crew. He liked to have guys in his crew that could go, that could do it if, he, if they needed to. He had a snake pit in his office. I don't know any territory that had one of those. And he had a volatile temper that was just downright scary sometimes. So as time goes by, we'll again visit these two great wrestlers. But uh, let's get on into the card for Sunday afternoon, January 25th, 1976 in Chihuahua Park. The very popular Southeastern Championship tournament is coming to a close. In fact, the headlining event is for that championship. It's toward Tanaka, managed by General Homer Odell against Ron Wright. The Tennessee Tag Championships on the line with the champions Austin and Malone, Norwell Austin, Butch Malone, managed again by Homer Odell against Robert and myself. There was a special challenge match that night with Don Carson against Jimmy Golden, who was extremely popular that the recently passed Charlie Cook was on that card, faced superstar number one, and the opening match was superstar number two against Dennis Hall. You know, it's time to take a look at that Saturday TV show that was the day before, which was a wonderful thing. You got your television show on a Saturday afternoon, 24 hours later, you got your live event on a Sunday afternoon. One of the reasons we like to run Sundays, especially in the wintertime. Uh, we recorded three matches from the Coliseum show just the Sunday before, and we're going to use all three of them on this TV. Opening match is Rocky Smith, uh, who is the former Inferno, the big man Inferno, the guy that had the club foot and the, that uh, was involved in all the finishes. And uh, and we uh, in the ring, he's already been introduced, and, uh, and then around the corner and into the studio comes toward Tanaka, and he's escorted, obviously, by Homer. This time, for really the first time, the studio crowd booed him. <laughs> first two weeks he was on there, they were scared to boo him, I think. Now, because of Homer, and he, he, was, he was getting heat at this point, but his real heat was coming from Homer. So Homer was getting red hot at this point. And he had tag champions, and now he was in a position to take control of the Southeastern Wrestling single title if Tanaka got one more win. Tanaka continued the quick wins on TV and Homer's fat face, man, he swelled up those big old lips pooched out. And, uh, with all that pride, he and Tanaka came, sat down at the set with Les Thatcher. They, they watched his semifinal win over Jimmy Golan. Jimmy really took it to Tanaka in that match for the first time since Tanaka arrived in Southeastern, he had a tough partner. 
And uh, Tanaka sold for him at the end of that match. I watched that match. It was exactly the way it should have been. Uh, he'd been in Knoxville for three weeks, and on this video was one of the top baby faces. And, you know, I didn't want him to go out there and squash Jimmy. That would, and, and he wouldn't have anyway. He was not that type of guy. So it was time to sell, and then he, he understood it, and he got even more heat when Homer had to get involved and, and draw Jimmy away from uh, beating him. I mean, Jimmy had him reeling and had him down a couple of times. Uh, Jimmy got his hands on Homer for the, one of the first times since Homer had been a manager in Southeastern. And the Coliseum crowd, I meant, went crazy, man. Uh, and the crowd sounded like it was twice as big as what it actually was. Uh, but then uh, the monster sneaked up behind Jimmy and wheeled him around there and put him away with a chop to his forehead. And People saw what he could do with his foreheads. You can imagine what he could do with his hands if he wanted to. Les tried to get Homer to admit that his interference had cost Jimmy a possible win. But old Homer, he ignored his comments and he focused on his monster standing behind him. So both Tanaka and Homer stayed at the set for the two-minute interview that followed, and they were joined by Austin and Malone with their Tennessee Tag Championship belts, which is only natural. They're defending them the next day. Homer started with Rob and I. Saying old man Fuller, because my dad had been in the six-man tag with me the Sunday before, couldn't get it done, and that his boys, talking about me and Rob, weren't capable of beating his undefeated team tomorrow. Homer was so blown up with pride that he looked like he was expecting a baby. Not only had that big belly, but he had, you know, his pride about the big man that he had standing behind him and his opportunity to win both the championships in Southeastern. Uh, he just he he was walking on cloud nine. Homer took the new Southeastern title belt off the front of the desk and held it up in front of Tanaka as if he wanted to see how it's going to look on him, right? So and Tanaka stood there like that stone statue again, like he did for every interview. And the fans hated the entire thing. I mean, they they made it crystal clear too. You could hardly hear what Homer had to say by the time he got to the end of the interview. I just have a philosophical question for you as a promoter. Did you have any uh, sort of unwritten rule when it came to your managers? You know, historically, uh, some of the great managers you talk about, guys like Bobby Heenan could take tremendous bumps. And then you had guys like Gary Hart, you know, maybe because of the plane crash he'd been involved with that wasn't so well-known taking bumps. Did you have a philosophy as a promoter that you didn't want the guys really to put their hands on the managers or, or what? No, I never, I never had any structured, uh, system with my managers. I, I think it always depends on what the manager is. Now, Homer O'Dell's a pretty big dude and he's not going to take a bunch of great bumps, you know, so you don't really put him in that position. You try to do the same thing with managers that you do with wrestlers. You don't ask them to do something that you don't think they can do. Because if you do that, you put your territory at risk of uh, something not looking good. And I always wanted to make sure that whatever happened, it had to look good. So, uh, you know, Homer's a Homer had a lot of heat, but uh, he's a different type of heel. You didn't bump him too much. You didn't hit him too much either, as a matter of fact. But I'm going to have managers that, uh, you know, from time to time that, uh, yeah, you can lay into and you can, you can do whatever you want to to them, and they're going to take tremendous bumps. Uh, I don't think Tom Homer would have taken great bumps, and I didn't really ask him to. I wouldn't, didn't expect it, kind of. Okay, what was the second match, Ron? Second match was a rare tag match for the two superstars. And, uh, you know, I felt I needed to give them a, a, a tag on TV. I'd been working them in all these shows as singles, and I was lucky I had two great tag teams in that in my little territory, and I needed to expose them both. So superstars were great to work with, man. Uh, Dick Dunn and Tarzan Baxter, good guys, uh, been in business a long time. They were patient with me. Uh, they knew I was using them as singles week after week, but they also knew their time was going to be coming somewhere along the line, and it is going to happen. Uh, they wrestled Dennis Hall and and Devoy Brunson in this tag match, and I, I'd forgotten how good those superstars were. I mean, you know, they hadn't been working as a team, but they looked great, and they made the studio audience, that just made the studio audience hate them even worse. They came to the set after the match, and they watched Ron Wright beat superstar number two the Sunday before in the Coliseum. That was to get into the finals 
for the Southeastern Championship. And they admitted that their pre-match plan to double-team right in the semifinal match didn't go as expected, and uh, and that's why number two lost. You know, they admitted that, you know, they number two, you know, <laughs> number one came down and he was going to get involved, Dunn was going to get involved, and and he ended up beating his own partner, hit his own partner with a gimmick, and uh, that's why he lost. But then they had the opportunity. They're still watching the match. After it ended, they both got in there on Ron Wright. He didn't have any help, and they beat him. It, it was pretty unmerciful-looking beating. I tell you, about knocked him unconscious. And, uh, you know, they had to, we had to send the guys down to help him get back from the ring. Charlie Cook had not been on the Southeastern card since November. And he came to the set with Dennis Talton and talked about their single matches. This is during the... Actual, these guys left the set, and out comes then uh, cooking them. And they talk about their single matches with the superstars the following day. Now, Charlie got a great greeting, and Hall was a big-time favorite in Knoxville. He'd been there on and off many, many times and was pretty over as a babyface. So this TV was unusual because almost everyone on the card for the next day had a chance to talk on the show. And that's really hard to do when you're putting together a television show to get everybody involved. And it took a lot of thought to make that happen, but I was able to do it on this particular show. Personality profile comes up next. It was with the hottest heel in Southeastern at that time, Don Carson. It was live again. I loved what had happened the week before when we did it live because that studio audience's reaction is part of that thing. And it, 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 it worked. So uh, he and Les watched the Lights Out match from the Sunday before in the Coliseum with Robert. Uh, and it was pretty bloody. In fact, I, we had to highly edit it to even be able to show it. And I was concerned about too much blood on my TV there because I certainly didn't want to alienate my my great television station that was really making a huge difference in in, in my success there. So uh, I, I said, hey, we got to take this out. We got to take that out. Uh, you know, and it ended up being... Uh, uh, a lot less than what we actually could have shown, but uh, I didn't risk my relationship with my television station. Uh, all these cities outside of Knoxville, and we're doing four of these a week, they're, they're drawing these big crowds because of that giant signal that this television station pumps out 100 miles in just about all directions around Knoxville. Carson got into the editing part of it. He, he started asking Les, hey, wait a minute, you know, where's all the blood? He don't look like he's even hurt, right? And uh, he was he was complaining that there wasn't enough shots of Rob bleeding enough. So Les tried his best to control where this was headed. And he was trying to maintain the personality profile structure that we always wanted to keep. But Carson was not to be denied as usual. And the louder and more indignant he got, the more the studio audience booed him. And Carson complained that he was tied down to wrestling a punk like Robert and denied the opportunity to win the Southeastern title that he deserved. He's saying, I ought to be the Southeastern champion. He's not even in the title match, but he's still saying I ought to be the champion. So it went back and forth with him and Les. And finally, Les had to close it out because the folks at home couldn't hear what they were saying above the booing from the studio crowd. That was the type of reaction it was getting. Uh, I could tell that things were going to get even better in Southeastern simply by listening to that studio crowd. They were really into it. We came out of the personality profile with Jimmy Golden entering the studio to arouse an ovation. And uh, his opponent, who is a tremendous and was a tremendous worker, and even at this point, uh, Dennis Condry was already in the ring, and he'd already been announced. This was the best match of the day. Uh, these two guys were as good as anybody in wrestling. Uh, Jimmy got the win with another drop kick off the top rope. It looked fantastic in slow motion. It was a main event t match that I'd booked on TV. That's basically what it was. Jimmy went to the desk, and he made the interview after the commercial break. He talked about how much he was looking forward to his shot at Big Mouth Carson the following day, and he wished Rob and I luck on our championship tag match the following day. TV match was Tony Peters and Phil Hickerson versus Rob and I. And uh, we'd not wrestled a tag match together since November 14th of the year before of 1975. But it didn't slow us down, and the crowd roared with every tag and every hold that we applied, and we traded in and out uh, 
we did a lot of the old, good old Southern style, the uh, baby face tag combination. On the end of the match, we used the move that won us the Florida Tag Championship three years earlier. Uh, both of our opponents weighed over 300 pounds, Tony Peters and Phil Hickerson. I don't know if y'all are familiar with Phil Hickerson, but Phil is a big boy too, and Tony Peters, both of them are more well over 300. So this finish that we're about to use it was very difficult for me because I had to catch the wrestler in midair, upside down, and fall with him between my legs, uh, and he lands on the back of his head. It was an extremely dangerous finish. Most guys didn't want to take that kind of a bump. Uh, Tony Peters took it in front of a studio audience that had never seen that move before. Uh, to set it up, uh, the way the move worked, Rob and I made a big comeback on Tony Peters and several tags back and forth in and out of the ring. And then Rob tagged me in and I shot Peters right past by Rob over to the ropes where Rob was facing. And uh, Tony Peters came off the ropes and Rob set up, had been set up, I guess, backed Rob up, got behind him. Uh, Tony Peters came off, Rob backdropped him as high as he could, and I lined up behind Rob. So Rob got him pretty high for a backdrop on a 300-pounder, and I caught Peters at his highest point. He was upside down when I wrapped my arms around his waist as best I could. I couldn't even connect my hands because he's a, he's a fairly He's big in the belly. And then we both dropped straight down to the canvas, had him upside down, and we just dropped, bam. I landed on my butt, and he landed on the back of his head and shoulders. The sound of the concussion of both our bodies, well, that was over 500 pounds. I'm weighing 250 or so, and he's up there at 300, probably 550 pounds, landed at the same time on that ring, those television rings, and they had all that metal underneath. It was an astounding sound. The studio crowd gave that whole Japanese reaction when something that was potentially deadly was done. You would get that from the Japanese. All you would get was that, Ugh! and that's what the television studio did. You know, they went, the whole crowd. And then there was dead silence. And I think they, they all waited to see if he was still alive. If he was going to get up, ref counted him out, and he laid there for several minutes before they came, full wrestler came and helped him to get out of the ring. When they showed it back in slow motion, which neither Rob or I had ever seen before in Florida because they weren't using slow motion. We were the only people right at this point using slow motion on television anywhere in the wrestling world. And it looked like in slow motion it, it, it would have broke his neck. It was a devastating finish move. And I'm sure people at home watching it back in slow motion believed he was badly hurt. <laughs> I watched it back and I had to believe he was badly hurt. So Rob and I made the last interview before a studio audience that was at this point just electric after seeing that finish. They showed it back again in slow motion during the two-minute interview. And fans reacted with the same, ooh, when they were watching it on the monitors. They went, ooh, again, like, oh, my gosh. And uh, I finished the interview saying uh, tomorrow afternoon, me and Rob going to guarantee you all something. Either Austin or Malone is going to feel that same pain because we're going to win the championships, uh, and we're going to use that devastating finish we used today. And then I added before I left to really put a little more emphasis on it. I said, and Homer, if you get your fat butt in there tomorrow, I'd love to drop you on your head too. And uh, got pops two or three times. It was a great way to end the show. And I'm sure fans that saw this show would be talking about that finish all week. Let's take our break here with David Summers. Super Studcast number 25, part two, is now available. It is one of the greatest wrestling and hockey stories ever told. Super Studcast number 25, part one of this three-hour event is setting the podcast world on fire. Ron retires from wrestling, the sport of his family for 64 years, and just 14 months later, wrestles with an unknown sport to him. 
hockey at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. He presents his team, the Nashville Knights, in the East Coast Hockey League on opening night. After most everyone predicted a crowd of less than 1,000, he draws an all-time league record of over 6,000. That's where this fantastic story begins. That same night, he creates a spectacular introduction for his team that becomes the template for game introductions done today all over the world. Part 2 is now available at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. He describes the introduction done one year later for his second hockey team, the Cincinnati Cyclones. This one literally sets the ice on fire. This remarkable true story blends wrestling with hockey and is being acclaimed by sports fans everywhere. Saddle up for something special, the likes of which you have never heard. Where are we going now, Ron? Well, we're going to get the results of the matches on that Sunday afternoon, January 25th, 1976. Uh, since we've talked about the television that promoted it, uh, Superstar number 2 beat Dennis Hall in the first match. Uh, Superstar number 1 had a 20-minute time limit draw with the returning Charlie Cook. Didn't want to beat Charlie. And uh, those guys had a great match. Wow. You know, you got Dick Dunn and Charlie Cook in there. You, you, you know you're going to have a great match. Don Carson beat Jimmy Golden. Using his old peanut butter black glove. And uh, Robert and I won the match for the Tennessee Tag Championship, but by disqualification. And we couldn't take the belts because of that fact. The worst thing about that ending was the way it happened. We had made such an impression with that devastating finish on TV that when we set up Norvell Austin to finish him off with that move, Homer was ready for it. And uh, about the time we're putting the move on him, Homer slid into the ring. We were sending uh, Austin into the ropes to backdrop him, and Homer slides in the ring. The referee sees Homer in the ring. He rings the bell. He stopped the match instantly. Well, hell, I just went ahead and dropped Austin on his head. I mean, you know, what am I going to do? And I really thought that I was going to cover him, and and that was going to be it. But uh, the referee had rang the bell, and and then as soon as I dropped him on his head and I covered him, uh, he he grabbed me and got one to get me up off the mat, and he was raising my hand. And, uh, you know, I'm like, wait a minute, you ain't counted him out. And he said, I already disqualified Homer over there, you know. So then once the crowd <laughs> received the news from the announcer, uh, and he explained what had happened and why we weren't going to be the champions, although we'd won the match, it was by disqualification, and you can't win the title by that qualification. Oh, the crowd down there, they were extremely upset about the finish of that one. Uh, following Sunday, we're going to get another chance at them, and it's going to be a no DQ clause in this one. The last match was for the new Southeastern Championship belt and title. Something unexpected and potentially crippling to my young territory had happened the day before television. Tanaka got me off to the side, and he said he had had a problem and in, in Hawaii with his family, and he needed to go home after tomorrow's match with Ron Wright. He gave me a, a one-day notice, kind of, you know. And uh, and, and then I asked him, I said, well, you know, you, you're coming back, aren't you? And he said, yeah, but I don't know how long it'll be. I can't come back until I get this solved. So I didn't, I didn't you know, like uh, I guess uh, most uh, promoters would do. You, I didn't, I didn't want to get into his personal life. I didn't ask him any more about it. He had given me a notice. He told me he needed to leave and told me he would try to come back, but it might be quite a while before he could do it. So there I am. You know, it's a Saturday afternoon. I've got, he's going to be my future top heel. And he's just kind of given me an instant notice, uh, you know, and I'm thinking now, what am I going to do in this match tomorrow? And how am I going to, to make up for this, uh, you know, fans are really getting into Tanaka. He's been there three weeks only, and I can see that he's going to draw me some big money, and he's going to make some good money, but uh, this comes up. So, like any booker, man, it's it's time to put on my thinking hat. You know, I, I had all afternoon and until 3 o'clock the next day to figure this out. Uh, so, you know, if fans will remember the finish we'd just done with Homer's boys in the tag match where Homer got them disqualified to save their belts, it's going to relate to this match with Tanaka and Ron Wright for the Southeastern Championship. So here we go with Tanaka's last match 
for who knows how long in Knoxville. Uh, Ron Wright entered the bottom floor of the indoor arena there in Chilhowee Park, and it was a pretty darn full crowd, too. And he got a tremendous reception. Uh, and toward Tanaka in general, Homer Odell entered, uh, and they got just the opposite other than a big cheer. They, they were roundly booed, as needed to be the case. And I could tell this was going to be a good match, man. Uh, the crowd was just ready for it. Uh, when the match was announced, the announcer made it plain at the very beginning that there must be a champion in this match. And the title, instead of like we had just seen with me and Rob in the match before, the title in this match could be won on a disqualification because it's a tournament final match and neither one of these guys is the champion. So in other words, if you get disqualified here, then uh, you're going to be out of it. And, uh, and uh, you know, you could... It kind of like the opposite effect of what happened to Rob and I. So when it appeared Tanaka was going to win, and he had Ron Wright going, he had him bleeding, Ron Wright's brother Don came downstairs from upstairs and uh, and went to the ring after Homer because Homer had been involved in the match at this point. Homer ran around the ring about the one time, and that's about as far as Homer could run, really, without blowing up. And uh, he got trapped kind of by Don Wright. And uh, just as the referee was counting out his brother, Tanaka had Ron Wright beat and had covered him. And Homer's trapped down there. Homer slid into the ring, just like he had in Rob and I's match, the match before. As soon as that happened, referee saw Homer in the ring again. He rang the bell. He stopped the match instantly, just as he had done in the tag match. He raised Ron Wright's hand and he gave him the belt. So the same thing that had saved the belts for Homer's tag team champion by getting them disqualified had now backfired on him and it cost Tanaka the new Southeastern belt uh, because Tanaka got disqualified. The crowd went crazy when they realized for sure that uh, their hero, Ron Wright, was the champion. That uh, you know He'd won by disqualification and it was because of Homer's interference. So in our match, Homer's interference had been bad for the fans, but in this one, it was great for the fans. So the Wrights left the ring. They got buried in a mass of humanity, man, congratulating them to the dressing room. It was it was amazing. I watched from upstairs. It was really amazing to watch the crowd and how into it they were. The real kicker, though, hadn't started. I mean, uh, now comes the part that I had to put some thought into. So Tanaka realized that Homer had cost him the championship and by cowardly running. Don Wright around the ring and then jumping in the ring to save himself. So, you know, as the fans celebration ended, you know, they, a lot of them followed the rights all the way upstairs to the dressing room. They kind of turned around and they looked and they see that Tanaka is about to get Homer, you know, well, geez, nobody in the building left. The crowd pushed forward. They surrounded the ring uh, 50 deep. Uh, There was, no way hardly for the heels to get in or out. And the roar was higher at that point than it had been all afternoon. Uh, Butch Malone had to fight his way down to the ring, and he got in and he pleaded with Tanaka not to attack Homer. Well, Tanaka, <laughs> you know, he's, he's working like he's upset, and uh, he started to move on Malone. And the crowd noise went up again. Uh, and then Norbell, who had been hurt and carried out of there, he hobbled down to the ring and he gets in the ring and he goes to Tanaka. And then Tanaka turns on him. He's going to go after him. Crowd noise comes up even higher. Finally, Tanaka's got Homer cornered. And the three of those guys, Homer, Norvell, and Malone, they all just hit the floor and they, 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 they took off running. They really ran to the dressing room. And the crowd fell instantly in love with the man they had hated just 20 minutes earlier. Tanaka could hardly get back to the dressing room. The video of this match uh, shown the following Saturday is going to be a huge part of that entire show because it's just uh, it's pretty darn good. So it was fascinating to see my idea that I'd come up with that turned out even better than I could have ever imagined it was. It was one of those finishes that not a single person in the building would have expected. And I love doing that as a booker. 
all of my career and as a booker and an owner, and I love to outthink people. I never thought when I was a booker that people were going to be able to figure out what I'm going to do from week to week. And uh, I'm going to do this same type of crazy finish uh, before a huge crowd and on television in, uh, that's going to be seen by an entire territory in 1982. It's going to be the best turn I ever do in wrestling. And I'm going to turn a guy that is just admired and revered by wrestling fans in Southeastern more than any guy there. He is the special referee for that match. And Bob Armstrong turns heel on me in a world title match with Ric Flair in Mobile, Alabama. And uh, it makes my Southeastern territory, it sends it off on the biggest year it will ever have. You know, Ron, there's an old line that was credited to uh, one of your former employees, Arn Anderson, that says adversity introduces a man to himself. Obviously, that's what you had to do in this situation. But let me ask you another philosophical uh, promoter question here. Uh, and I suppose the easy uh, there's an easy answer out there. But did you as a promoter prefer to have as your, uh, you know, your representative, your Southeastern champion, a heel or a baby face? Or is it strictly the guy that was putting asses in the seats? Well, it's, it's partially that. It's, it's the guy that puts the asses in the seats. But uh, I tell you, when you build a territory and you, you build a company, heels are the most important. They have to be your champions. In order to get your territory off the ground, in order to get people's attention, you have to have heels with tremendous heat. That When you really are getting there, when you're building the territory, is when you start to have riots every night in every town. And that happened to me when I went to Southeastern down in Pensacola and I bought it from the Fields brothers. And we started out in a six month period of time. The last three months, I, I, I wouldn't let any heels go home. Uh, it was customary that you don't go home until it's all over because sometime during this night, we're going to have a riot. And uh, we took a territory that was dead and had been dead for years. And uh, within six months, we turned it into a moneymaker. It was amazing what happened there. So I guess the answer is I, I would prefer to have a heel. But uh, you got a great baby face and you got a great territory and you got guys that are over from top to bottom like we had with Continental and with Southeastern, like we had in Knoxville. They, we're going to reach the same period during Knoxville's time as well in which it doesn't make any difference because uh, the crew, it's its not uh, at, at, at a point when you get to like that and every guy on your card is a main eventer. It doesn't make any difference who has the belt. It doesn't make any difference who's in the first match or the last match. It is a phenomenal event from beginning to end. And uh, I guess that's an answer to your question. Okay, Ron, I think uh, before we go much further, we need to take another uh, seat under the old Ron Fuller learning tree. So uh, I think you got a great question. So uh, I don't know how long it's going to take. So why don't we go to the learning tree, Ron? Okay. Uh, that's, that's probably a good idea because uh, this question may take, may take a little, little bit of time to answer. Uh, so today's learning tree question came from a lady named Barbara Davis and a lady. You know, uh, uh, that's pretty remarkable. You know, and, and I get a lot of questions from ladies. And, and uh, you know, so, and they're good wrestling fans. They're very knowledgeable. and. Uh, and I mentioned this in last week's learning tree uh, as we finished it. Uh, and she, her question was, please compare the Welch family wrestling history to the McMahons of WWE fame and what each contributed. What a great question. You know, I mean, uh, so before I begin this one, I want to thank all the fans that sent questions for future learning tree episodes. The quality of these questions is just fantastic. Man, I've got some great fans out there that really know their wrestling. I, I can't wait to cover as many of these these learning tree questions as I can. It just uh, And this question, I picked it because it kind of fit with the last two great questions of uh, learning tree questions. Uh, the question two weeks ago was compared today's major wrestling companies, TV audience and crowds to the territories of 1976. And last week's question was, what happened to wrestling? So the question for today seems to tie in with both of those. So, uh, so let's begin this learning tree today with my family and what we contributed to the sport. My grandfather, Roy Welch, started his career in 1924. 
He was trained by one of the best shooters of all time, a guy out west called Dutch Mantell. Now, this is not the Dutch Mantell that fans are going to go, oh, I know Dutch Mantell. No, this was the real Dutch Mantell and the guy who made that name famous. And my granddad, in his training, uh, the first workout he ever had with Dutch, who didn't want to train him, Dutch broke his wrist in the first workout, and he broke his ribs in the last workout he ever had. And in the last workout he ever had with my granddad, my granddad was so good at this point that Dutch Mantell put a crooked leg scissor on him, which is an extremely painful hold. And uh, Roy turned in that crooked leg scissor, broke his ribs doing it, and actually pinned Dutch. And uh, Roy told me this story, and I said, what did Dutch say when that happened? And he, in that accent, uh, you know, he was a Dutchman, he said, I never wrestle you again. So uh, Roy had paid the price to graduate, and Dutch sent him from Amarillo, Texas, to Columbus, Ohio, to begin his 50-year wrestling career. Four years later, Roy heads south into Tennessee to introduce wrestling, professional wrestling, to the southern New United States. And that's about what he's going to do. He's going to bring it to 12 states in the South. My grandfather invented tag team wrestling in the early 1930s. He had two brothers, Herb and Jack. He trained them to wrestle. And uh, it was a perfect answer for a sport that had just had one-on-one competition. And that had been the only style of any professional wrestling anywhere before to, to have two guys and to have three guys on each team it just fit perfectly. It was, uh, it was uh, just a, a tremendous, tremendous idea. You know, perfect answer to one competition that, that had been the only style of professional wrestling before Roy. So there seems to be several other references. I looked on the Internet just to see, you know, you know what the, the Internet says. And it says that maybe the first tag match took place in 1901. But there was no verification for it. There was no name of the participants on it. You know, I didn't think that, well, that doesn't sound like it. That could have been uh, the back that early. So another that arrived uh, for sure in the 1930s. Uh, uh, so, you know, uh, some say that the first tag match was in 1937 on the Internet in Houston, Texas. But I know for a fact Roy and Herb had been wrestling in tag matches as far back as 1933 in Tennessee and Kentucky. Uh, so there's very little information about my family on the Internet. For one reason, because we're the oldest (laughs) wrestling family on the planet. We go back so much further than most wrestling families. uh, And probably the biggest reason that we're not highly publicized on the Internet is the fact my family never wanted or promoted. Uh, They didn't want to be high profile in the sport. They didn't want to promote themselves as owners of companies. So, uh, you know, that we've been kind of overlooked all these years. That's kind of one of the reasons I want to do these studcasts. It's because I come from the biggest and the, and the, and the oldest and, the, and, and one of the best wrestling families that ever lived. And, uh, and it's time that, you know, we got some recognition for a change. So uh, Roy also trained the first wrestling bear in the early 1930s. And on the internet, they said, well, there was a fad in the 1800s and they used to wrestle bears in bars in New York. Now, to me, <laughs> I, I I can't see that. Uh, you know, how the hell are you going to wrestle a bear? Who controls the bear? And where are you going to, you're going to put clean out the day? It didn't make sense for me. So, I, you know, I got to look and I wanted to find out who is modern day, you know, to train the bear, you know? So, uh, I didn't consider wrestling in bars as professional wrestling. So the the internet kind of gave credit to a modern-day wrestler, uh, you know, uh, named uh, Mervyn Barackman in the northwestern United States in early 1933. But Roy trained his bear, Ginger, in 1932, and he started her in the ring in late 1932. There's no mention in there of Roy, nor the bear. Now, I may go back and uh, see if I can uh, do something to uh, kind of straighten out some of this. But he wrestled her himself for the first several years because no other wrestler had guts enough to, to get in the ring with a bear. Uh, the difference between Roy and every other bear that's ever been trained is Roy's bear had all her teeth and her claws. And uh, that was a tribute to my granddad's care for his bear. 
He really cared for her, and he did not want to take her teeth out and pull her claws. A uh, very painful and a horrible way to to have a pair, bear live its life like that. But uh, and like I said, every other bear, they all had their canine teeth pulled and they had their claws removed. Gin, the fact that Ginger had her teeth and all her claws, it almost cost my dad his life. At 12 years old, she attacked him and almost killed him in 1937 because she had her teeth and she had her claws. So Roy was a smart guy. He took his bear on the road throughout North America. He he took her into Mexico. He took her to Central America. He took her into Canada in the 1940s during World War II because, uh, you know, the bear was something special. And, and it took really something special to bring out crowds during wartime. So second generation of my Welches entered the ring of the Welch family in 1940s. Roy's youngest brother, Lester, my father. Uh, their three cousins and their father named the Fields. He was married to one of Roy's sisters. Roy's brother, Herb, had a son named Doyle. My dad's sister married a guy named Bill Golden that's going to be the father of Jimmy Golden. And he's going to be a promoter and he's going to do some refereeing. So uh, this second generation would all be trained by Roy and Herb, all of them except Bill Golden, obviously, and uh, Herb's sons. And all of them, except for Herb's sons, Doyle, are going to go on to become very successful wrestlers or referees or wrestling promoters and owners of wrestling companies in the state of Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, West Virginia, Mississippi, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Arizona, New Mexico. My father alone was responsible for the largest crowds ever drawn to this day in Mobile, Alabama in Memphis, Tennessee, in Phoenix, Arizona, in Atlanta, Georgia. The biggest crowds ever to see a wrestling event in those four cities. They contribute that. Obviously, it's got to be contributed to my dad. The next generation of wrestlers began to arrive on the wrestling scene in the late 1960s. Lester's two sons, Jack and Roy Lee, my brother Robert and I, our cousin Jimmy Golden. The Fields brothers had three sons. So, you know, in sheer numbers alone, all of these contributed to the sport in a very positive way. I myself built four wrestling companies and put hundreds of wrestlers to work, created maybe the best studio wrestling show ever, and shared my ideas with members of the National Wrestling Alliance. I was personally instrumental in taking down two athletic commissions, one in Tennessee and one in Alabama, that operated with a discriminatory tax against boxing and wrestling only, and no other sport of any kind. How the heck can you tax just two sports and not tax your basketball games and your football games? And, you you know, it just didn't make sense. It, it, it's what had been happening all over the country. You know, so uh, there was the same type of commissions. I talked about one of them last week in, uh, in New Jersey. I'm going to speak of it again today. Uh, there's a fourth generation now. I've got a son named Chad who's had one match, and Jimmy Golden has a son named Bobby who's had several matches. You know, and, and I'm sad to say that these guys never had a chance to wrestle on a regular basis like we did when we were coming up and my, my father did when he was coming up, and they're not able to wrestle on a regular basis because of another family. And uh, that's where we're going to go now, that other family. Let's take a look at the McMahon family. The first McMahon involved in wrestling was Roderick James. They called him Jess McMahon. He promoted boxing, wrestling, and concert. He was the father of Vince, Vince Sr., Vince, Vince James McMahon Sr., who was born in 1914 and died in 1984. Vince Sr. built the Capitol Wrestling Corporation from 1954 to 1982. He was the man. That company, Capitol Wrestling, goes on to become WWWF. And finally, WWF, period, and they lose that third W. And he operated in the northeastern United States, basically from Washington, D.C. to Boston. Uh, Vince Sr. ran all of wrestling in the northeast. His first television exposure began in 1955 on the Dumont Network. Uh, it was a huge outlet for wrestling across the country prior to CBS and ABC and NBC, the three major networks that we're going to become familiar with uh, starting in the 50s that's still there today and operating. 
And on this same Dumont network was Jim Barnett and uh, Fred Kohler and other promoters uh, in the Midwestern United States. The network itself shut down in 1956. But Vince Sr. kept airing it on the flagship station, which was in New York City. And then from there, he had to kind of do what all the promoters did in the early days of television. He had to set up his own wrestling network. He had to find stations that were willing to put his wrestling show on the air. And so uh, Vince Sr. was a part of the NWA at one time, early in its existence. I don't know exactly the year of that, but I do know that he left the NWA in 1963, and he came back to the NWA in 1971. I don't know the reasons for that as well. I do know that Vince Sr. was a respected and admired guy by promoters, most all of them around the world. Uh, As a young member of the NWA in 1975, when they put me into the NWA, he was nice, very nice to me. And he invited me to work for him in Madison Square Garden. He was a special guy, Vince Jr., I didn't ever do this, but uh, I I found out from talking to someone that that Vince Jr. never met his father until he was 12 years old. His father separated. Uh, Vince Jr. was not born at that point. And uh, he went the first 12 years of his life without ever meeting his father. Uh, His father divorced his mother, and uh, Vince was born, like I said, when when, uh, his dad had already left. Uh, So Vince McMahon Jr. worked for his father. I guess most people know this, but, you know, I, I'm trying to answer the lady's question. He, Vince Jr. worked for his father with, in the WWF as a commentator on his wrestling shows as a young man. And neither his father nor his grandfather ever wrestled. Uh, Vince Sr., it was sad, sold his company to his son. And, and it was said he sold his company to his son. But there's some question about that sale today. You know, as as did it really ever happen? Uh, senior Senior wasn't a greedy man. I can say that for him. Uh, he never wanted to control wrestling beyond the borders of his own company. His son, however, had other ideas. I never met Vince Junior. Uh, I never saw him at an NWA meeting in the years that his dad came, and his dad did come every year after '73, and uh, so. Uh, you know, he might not have been a part of the NWA as as is as using the champion, but he was a, he was a good enough guy. He respected the people that were in the NWA because they had all earned it just like he had. It became obvious in the early 1980s what Junior's plan was for professional wrestling. Uh, he bragged about it in a national sports magazine soon after he purchased the business from his father. And after his father died, and and I'm going to quote this. This is exactly what he said to this national sports magazine. He said, had my father known what I was going to do, he would never have sold his stock to me. That is a profound statement to me. It says everything about the difference between those two guys. So And, and so began uh, Junior's quest to kill the territories and actually buy only those companies that he couldn't easily kill. He'd purchased a few of them. If he couldn't kill them, he ended up having to buy them. And I explained in my last learning tree, for those who might not have heard it, how diabolical his plan was to accomplish this killing of the territories. Uh, once he had accomplished what he set out to do, uh, let's take a look at what happened since to professional wrestling in America, <laughs> since, since he has gotten control of it. He had no major effect on wrestling in other countries, such as Japan, except for lying to one of the two Japanese promotions and then trying to attack them from within, his plan failed, and his company's appearances there are of little consequence today. Uh, They were lucky. They were oceans apart from the greed. Uh, I think his focus from the beginning was on big pay-per-view events that generated huge revenue, charged big prices to the fans. His audience was more affluent and much less educated to Southern old-style wrestling. I don't think Junior ever had a very high opinion of basic wrestling, shooters, or real wrestlers. He made no attempt to interest the middle-class fans around the country and, and, and it, <laughs> with what had been their traditional wrestling 
Uh, instead, he began the big production TV shows and the and the pay-per-views. Uh, he had a lot of bad finishes. He had weak storylines. He had lots of visual gimmicks. He had much less true wrestling. He had big bodybuilders that couldn't work, move like wrestlers had in the past. Then he started stooping to vulgar gestures like the middle finger, and he glorified the consumption of alcohol. Eventually, totally scripted his TV shows nowadays, and uh, finally developed uh, you know the ridiculous gymnastics of the sport today that that doesn't have any roots in in real wrestling or old school wrestling. That's for darn sure. In my opinion, he had no respect for old school wrestling or their fans. And speaking of vulgar gestures, he gave them the bird early on. He walked away from them. He he did not try to uh, connect with those millions and millions of fans whose wrestling he had destroyed. By doing so, he lost forever the biggest audience wrestling ever had back in the 1970s and early 80s. He walked away from that. It went well at first for him, but true wrestling fans around the country, they saw through it right away. TV audiences, uh, nowadays, they've started dying off dramatically. Uh, Sell-out houses, they've disappeared long ago, and now they don't hardly even run live events. Uh, settling wrestling, as as we knew it, it's gone. I mean, uh, then after killing it, for most fans, decided to try and save a little tax money from the New Jersey Athletic Commission, and he made the unpardonable sin. He broke kayfabe, and, he, and by doing that, he finished the job of the destruction of the sport. So I apologize for this one-sided comparison between my family and the McMahon family and the contributions that each made to the sport. But I'm be honest with you, I can't find many things that are better about the sport today than it was before Vince McMahon Jr. took it over. In fact, I can't think of a single one. And if there's any listeners out there today that have something they believe is better today about the sport than it was years ago, please send me your thoughts. My social media sites, so you're going to be hearing them at the end of this program. And I'll come back to this. I'll revisit this Learning Tree episode here, and I'll I'll talk about your contributions that you're telling me that uh, he made and how he has made wrestling better than what it was. I'll be brief as possible about what I believe were some of my family's contributions. Uh, we never tried to appeal to the potential vulgar side of the sport. We strive to produce a family event on TV and at all the house shows. Over the 64 years of our involvement in the sport, we revived many dead territories. We brought millions of new fans to the sport that saw unprecedented growth over that 64-year span. Uh, wrestling was going crazy. It was growing every year until it got destroyed. We trained and employed thousands of wrestlers. We cooperated with and assisted promoters and owners from around the world. We gave up our ideas. Uh, we had tried to help people rather than steal their livelihood. We tried to help them have a better business and to do better. We did our best to make wrestling an even better sport than the generation before us. And certainly, we never broke kayfabe. So, Miss um, Barbara Davis, uh, I hope that answers your learning to a question today. In my humble opinion, one of these families spent their lives trying to build a great sport, and a member of another is totally to blame for where the sport is now. Okay, as we go for the go-home, folks, you can follow the Tennessee Stud on Facebook uh, at the Tennessee Stud page, and you automatically become friends with the legend. On Twitter, at Ron Fuller Welch. Don't forget the 3R Plus Super Stud Cast number 25 is now available uh, at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Ron, where are we going next week? Well, we're going to follow up on the angle with Tor Tanaka that I talked about today in Homer Odell, where the fans really got <laughs> pretty excited about Tanaka as a baby face. Uh, and speaking of Homer, I got a great story I'm going to tell about Homer next week. Uh, he was the most horrified guy I was ever around about uh, fans uh, sticking knives in him and, and attacking him. And uh, I'm going to tell one of those stories next week. Uh, we're going to be entering February 1976 in the next episode. And we're going to uh, start it off with the first ever Southeastern Championship match uh, being defended. Our next learning tree is going to be totally different. We're going to discuss the NWA in depth. We're going to talk about the picking of champions, the settling of disputes, and the many other problems and successes 
for the largest and strongest professional wrestling organization in history. Before we go, Jeff, I want to thank all my listeners today. And uh, may God bless all of us. Okay, until next week, uh, for the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller, I am Jeff Bowdern. Our producer is Sweet Lou Kippelman. I'd like to remind you that the Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And until next week, when the ride continues. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.